presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I am chairman of the board of CSI. Thank you for joining us today. The initial economic shocks of COVID-19 pandemic have subsided. But the lockdowns and economic restructuring, which resulted, have yielded worldwide supply chain deficiencies, slower than expected economic growth, and a strong sense of uncertainty And here in Colorado as well as nationally, and unease in the world business. Despite all of this, forecasts point to continued economic growth and labor market recovery, much of which we've seen in Colorado, what we're going to talk about today. And many economists are optimistic about the immediate future, as our guests are today. Today, I'm joined by two of the leading authors and products of the University of Colorado's annual Business Economic Outlook Report, something which I would encourage everyone to have a chance, if they have a chance to look at it, study it. There's a lot of meaningful information in it. Brian Lewandowski and Dr. Rich Wobekine are the authors of this report. This publication and its accompanying forum is intended to provide, I say, quote, provide professionals across nearly every industry in the state with a forecast of Colorado's economy by sector, unquote. Brian is the executive director of business research division at CU Boulder, lead school of business. Brian, it's great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me here. I'm also pleased to welcome Dr. Rich Wolbekind. Rich has been up the University of Colorado for how many years now? 35. 35. He got his Ph.D. from the University of Colorado, his M.A. there. He is the Dean of Business and Government Relations, Senior Economist, and Faculty Director of Business Research Division at the University of Colorado Boulder. And many students are very fortunate to have his classes in macroeconomics that he teaches. Rich, it's great to have you with us. It's a pleasure. And Earl, I'd like to say it's great being able to talk about the economy in a longer t- context. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion. I am too. Let's get started. Uh, before we discuss the outlook, your report, I'd like to get your thoughts on the state of affairs today. As one of the state's leading economists, how would you characterize Colorado's economy as it stands right now? And how will you see the recovery going in the next 24 to 36 months? So we have to take any of these uh thoughts or comments in context. And context is, of course, the national economy and the state economy. We certainly think the recovery in employment has been more rapid than we anticipated a year ago. So we have to say pretty enthusiastically, we've recovered jobs and we think we're going to recover a full amount of jobs by roughly the third quarter. We'll be back to the same employment level. Is that the same participation level? Is is that what you're talking about, too? I'm I'm talking about, uh, specifically in this, I'm talking about actual number of jobs. Okay. But in terms of participation levels, where we have the fourth highest labor force participation rate in the country, it's one of the real strengths of the state. And we're almost back to pre-pandemic participation levels, which is a big advantage over other parts of the country. You know, I I was reading a report, uh, I don't know, it's Goldman Sachs. I know you refer to Goldman Sachs. That said normal economic recoveries. In fact, it was a discussion with the economist at the Federal Reserve here in Denver. Typically, the participation rate doesn't get back to normal for seven years on a normal recession. So this is not a normal 
a normal recovery and recession? This is a much more rapid recovery. And, and you know, if you go back to the most recent, the great financial crisis right. recession, it was three or four years before we saw participation really jump back up. So this is a much more rapid recovery. Uh, at the national level, it's a little bit slower, but we are starting to see more recently in the national data also increases in That's great participation. News. It is, frankly, it's necessary for long-term growth of the country. Brian, uh, I know we've got that recovery that, that Rich just mentioned. Now, where do we see some issues with regards to recovery, some spots that maybe we aren't quite getting the recovery we'd like to have It's uh, and we're feeling it? As Rich mentioned, the, the recovery is happening much faster than it has happened in uh, at least recent memory, recent recessions. Um, so from the, the Great Recession, it took us 72 months to get back to peak employment levels. And in the 2001 to 2005 recession, it took over four years to get back to peak levels. Right now, nationally, we're tracking a recovery that looks more like the 1990 savings and loan crisis recession, mm. which is kind of interesting given how deep this recession was, how, how deep of an impact it had on employment. It's really interesting um, how that recovery is going. You know, that being said, there are still headwinds for certain parts of our economy, and we, we could talk about those headwinds. By geography, there's places that are experiencing slower rebounds. Maybe we should focus on some industries. So our tourism industry is an industry that's really lagging in the recovery. It'll we, while we project Colorado's employment will uh, recoup job loss from the recession in 2022, we think it'll be at least another year or even maybe another two years before the leisure and hospitality employment gets back to those peak levels. How, how big of a part of the GDP is the leisure and hospitality industry for Colorado? It's I, just approximately. I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Just approximately so we get a sense of the importance of that employment base. I, I believe in terms of employment, it makes up about one out of six jobs in the state. Wow, that's quite large relative to every other state on average. We, we certainly do have a higher concentration of that leisure and hospitality employment. And just to paint a picture for what leisure and hospitality means, uh, you can think about hotels and restaurants right. as well as our ski resorts. So it's really a lot of that Colorado brand when we talk about leisure and hospitality. So we do have a higher concentration, and this was an industry that was more adversely impacted from the recession. And is that, as far as a economic group, and this is a question for both of you, uh, I refer to things as the bottom two quintiles or the top two quintiles. What uh, economic uh, strata would those folks fall into, the, the leisure industry and particularly those that we need to find new jobs for? You, you've certainly keened in on it. It's it's the, the lower quartile of jobs, uh, especially in, in terms of pay. Okay. Uh, these tend to be minimum wage or uh, slightly above minimum wage jobs. They tend to be hourly. They tend to have fewer social benefits tied to their jobs, you know, like uh, vacation leave or, or sick leave. But also remember that some of that data is a little bit skewed because these jobs tend to be uh, predominantly part-time in nature. So when we take a look at this data uh, annually, it's showing us average wages based on a headcount. It's not based on an FTE or number of hours worked in a year. So the, the, these do tend to be lower-paying jobs, but uh, it's it's not quite as low as what's presented in some of the data. Rich, your uh, report talked about uh, you know maybe a, a full recovery in 2023, if I remember correctly, and others are arguing for 2022. And not that I'm trying to uh, make a case for one or the other, 
But if 2023 is the likely time, if it doesn't occur in 2022, what's not happening that could happen to make it be more accelerated? So for our general economy, actually, we have 2022. We have I'm sorry, employment I... back up in the end of 2022. Okay. What well, employment? The general employment, economy? Yes. Okay. The sorry. 2023 piece references really tourism and some of the sectors that have lost a lot of employment. Uh, government, uh, natural resources, and mining are all sectors that had very difficult 2020, but also not a great 2021. Got and it. so they're further out into the future. And it's just disproportionate impacts that uh, you that Brian was just mentioning a moment ago. So when we look at this uh, overall picture, some of the headlines uh, were kind of confusing that were in the newspapers. Some said full recovery and some said slowing job growth. And we actually, the two-handed economists, we can say both of those things. We do see slowing job growth in 2022, but that is based on the fact that we're getting closer to full employment we have much less slack in the workforce, and, so, and it's really predicated very much on the worker shortage that we see. Brian, we talk about you know problems facing businesses uh, after the pandemic. One of the things that your report showed uh, that I was really surprised by was the number of proprietorships that we have now versus 1970s. So it seems to me if we're talking about uh, problems, we're probably focusing on proprietorships and the difficulty they might have in getting back to what, where they would like to be. Can you describe a little bit of what's going on there? Well, the, this book uh, predominantly focuses on the employee side of uh, jobs in Colorado. Right, right. We, but we, we do talk about proprietorships in there. And I, I think that the, the struggles that we describe in this book sort of span um, all types of businesses. Uh, so it doesn't matter if it's large or small. Yeah, so we we have seen a somewhat disproportionate impact on smaller companies than larger companies, and uh, Colorado is a very much a small business state, but right. we're we're a small business country, so we we yeah. have a slightly higher concentration of small businesses than the nation at large. Um, Colorado does, yeah, uh, but you know, so we 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 reach out to businesses quarterly, and and we ask them a, a whole range of questions about their outlook one quarter out and two quarters out. It's called the Leeds Business Confidence Index. And uh, and I we, thank you for that. I respond to it. Yeah, you thank know you. That. We we appreciate that response. <laughs> you're you're very much uh, in the know about how businesses are doing, and and so we 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 ask for their outlook, but then we ask why. So what, what's the primary reason for your optimism or your pessimism one quarter out? And it's an open ended question, and then we bucket all of their responses, and the concerns that we hear from businesses, large and small are that they're worried about inflation, they're worried about the supply chain issues, uh, where they're going to get goods and services or when they're going to get them. They're worried about worker shortages. Uh, it seems to span almost every industry in the state. Even and, leisure and, and hospitality? Absolutely, leisure and hospitality too. And um, they're also very much concerned about COVID variants. So for a while they talked about the Delta variant, now they're talking about the Omicron variant. And so that, that just poses uncertainty for those businesses. Okay. I, I, I just have to follow up with both of you. Jolt, which is the, <laughs> is the, you know, there's a lot of job openings out there. And Brian, you left the door open for this. So, Rich, I'm going to let you try to close the door okay. if you want. It, 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 I look around. I just see all these, you know, 
people wanted signs up, hiring. And, you know, we got special hours. You want six hours a, you know, a day? You want three hours a day? We'll make anything accommodating to you. Uh, restaurants can't open their their uh, basic uh, services. They have to do drive-through. But yet we're saying that that uh, side, there's people unemployed in those particular, what's going on? Well, I think there's been a, <clears throat> a lot of different discussions of what's created this. Uh, some has been related to more females uh, taking care of work of families at home. And so sure. there's been a little bit of, uh, you know, coming back to the workforce or actually filling those jobs. There's been some that people are moving out of those occupations like restaurants, which are face-to-face and a little bit higher risk and are trying to move into better quality jobs. I can deliver packages for Amazon and make uh quite a bit more money than, you know, working in a restaurant. And, hey, by the way, Amazon's willing to be flexible on my hours too. Sure. So there's there's a lot of it that seems to be uh, pulling workers away from some of those direct face-to-face sorts of uh, businesses. But we don't know overall, I you know, to support sort of what your question was originally, there's a job opening for every unemployed person in the state of Colorado right now. There's I was a one-to-one mapping right now. And for many states in the country, there is as many jobs open as there are people. So you come to whether it's COVID-related pieces or you come to the other conclusion, potentially, and this may be somewhere you were trying to go, that there are structural issues. There's a welding job open, but the person doesn't have welding skills or drywall job open. We know there's a lot of uh, jobs open in construction, and then people don't have the right skill sets. So in some cases, it's structural, but in some cases, people are at least attributing it to the fact that at, at this point in time, there's just uh, people not willing to take those same types of jobs. The hours aren't perfect. I don't have health care coverage, all of those types of things. How long do you think it'll take to settle out, Brian? Well, that's that's one reason why we're we're sort of pessimistic about the quick recovery in leisure and hospitality, and that, and that that's one reason why we push that recovery out until twenty twenty three or maybe even a, a little bit longer. Um, you know, normally what we're talking about is the the demand side for these goods and services. When will a customer come back? That's really what the conversation was early during the pandemic. When will people get out to restaurants again? Uh, but now that conversation has shifted to a supply side, a, a, a lack of workers or a lack of supply of workers. The one thing I wanted to add on to what Rich just mentioned is we've seen a sharp decrease in the number of people who are dual job holders nationally. So pre-pandemic, um, we had all of these these individuals who were working more than one job. They tended to be nested in these lower wage industries. You know, maybe I work at the ski hill during the day and then I go and work my restaurant job at night. We've seen uh, about a million fewer of those dual job holders nationally. So maybe they become they, they became single job holders where wages have gone up. I can I can get by working a, a single job now. Maybe some of those people shifted over to being gig workers or, or self-employed. And as Rich mentioned, maybe some of them just left the market altogether. That's fascinating. I'd like to drill down a little bit about the the unemployment number, if I could. Break it down between the college-educated and those that aren't college-educated. Your report did, in my mind, kind of enlightened me a little bit about the college-educated. And could you kind of share the difference so that all of us understand kind of this bifurcation? 
that's occurred between the, those that are college educated and their unemployment level and what they experienced with regards to this pandemic and those that aren't college educated and their unemployment level and uh, how that might fit into how you see next year. I, I can tell you from the college perspective, the number that you showed with regards to the unemployment level, we're experiencing that and it's very painful. And I can't believe other firms that are looking for professionals in the college area aren't having some difficulties. Anyway, please go ahead, Rich. Well, so you're highlighting a very important point. I typically show graphics when we're presenting. And the correlation between levels of education and unemployment rate are outstanding. I mean, they're just perfectly correlated. And it isn't just college. It even uh, associates degrees or, you know, beyond a high school degree. But each level of education you go up, the unemployment rates go down significantly. Even in Colorado. Even in Colorado. And correspondingly, you also have higher wage rates with each of those categories. So if you're, you know, counseling somebody, as we often do, you know, in in our our lives, you're talking to somebody, the number one thing you say to them is the best way to assure a – you know, better job possibilities, but also better wages, higher levels of education and specialization and skills. And it is no different right now. You know, a nursing degree is outstanding. Um, You know, associate's degrees that are more technical in terms of manufacturing or other areas, really high uh, placement rates right now, low unemployment rates. So you have that correlation all the way through. But the college uh, is is the preeminent one. Do I remember correctly, and I know you'll correct me if I didn't, 2.7% unemployment rate for college educated? Yes, and and I think if you look at the graphic, it never got all that high even in 2020. I mean, it goes up to like four or five, and we had the same experience uh, back in the Great Recession. We had this, you know, fall off, but the fall off was a fraction of what it was for the people who you know, had high school diplomas or didn't even have high school diplomas. And this particular recession, as Brian was alluding to earlier, hit the low-wage workers and the low education levels much harder than it hit the the general population and specifically the college-educated because more of those jobs you could do from home, you could work remotely. And so, you you know, they don't necessarily need to be face-to-face if you're an investment professional or, you know, so. So some of us within the, quote, professional arena, which I'd like to think my, my firm happens to be in, you know, we're out there looking for folks and, and college educated, advanced degrees. And what you're just, uh, I think, clarifying is that's a tight market. That cohort is, is uh, back to full employment. And and one one way to salaries? synthesize what what Rich was talking about just a moment ago, that that correlation between education and low unemployment rates and higher wages, really that education pathway is a, a pathway to reduce personal economic risk. How about salaries with regards to that group? That seems to me to be a, you know, a, you get tight employment. It's just a recipe for salaries to. Uh, to start increasing maybe faster than they have in the past, or am I trying to read too much into it? No. there's uh, Overall, there's been a very rapid appreciation in wages, and we have seen a significant appreciation in wages in the lower wage categories, too, just because of the scarcity of workers in restaurants. That fit. And, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. But 
We've also saw a very nice increase in uh, finance, insurance, and real estate sector, which is where your lo- your firm is located, right. uh, in terms of wage uh, increases. What we're seeing that's getting increasingly popular is firms really recruiting our students early, trying to get them to do internships in their sophomore or their junior year to try to get them uh, interested in the firm and really building a pipeline so they're digging deeper and deeper into this sort of you know school year and really trying to cultivate interest in the firm. So another structural change you're talking about. Another structural change in terms of employment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this pandemic has really kind of changed things, I would say. So one interesting anecdote that we've heard from some companies, especially in the software business, is that now they're they're really competing nationally or globally for these workers who can work remotely from from anywhere. And so the interesting byproduct of that is instead of paying a software developer, Denver software developer wages, those software engineers now would like San Francisco wages (laughs) while living in Denver or living in Omaha. That's a painful comment, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Let me... uh, just for everybody here that's listening, uh, can you give us what you think are the winners and losers coming out of this pandemic? So uh, winners are in that professional business services arena that we were just chatting about. So uh, particularly professional scientific and technical services, architecture, engineer, software development. We've seen finance do very well. Uh, professional services is an industry that continued to grow throughout the pandemic in Colorado. This is an industry that we have a high concentration of activity in, in Colorado. Big future for us. It's already a big deal, and it's a big part of our future here, too. It pays higher than average wages. It's part of our high-tech economy, and we see continued growth uh, in the future. These are jobs that can also be done uh, remotely, but they're, they're choosing Colorado. On the less optimistic end of that spectrum, we, we've already talked about our tourism industry extensively. Uh, we also see natural resources and mining as an industry that will uh, be slow to recover in the state. We we saw oil and gas prices fall during the recession with the, the lack of demand. Uh, we saw a sharp decrease in uh, new drilling activity in the state. We saw a sharp decrease in production and a huge decrease in the value of production falling almost 50% because not only did price go down, but production fell. And uh, while we see some of that activity coming back in 2022, we have uh, also lost some of our head- regional headquarters jobs that we had here in Denver. So even as production comes back and as drilling comes back and those jobs come back with that activity, we still won't have all of those regional headquarters jobs that we had before. But, you know, I hear hear you saying that it's kind of like it's going to be replaced by these other companies, these other opportunities what is it, 60% of downtown Denver is related to the energy industry? And what I hear you suggesting is, well, okay, but now it's maybe going down to 30%, but that will be replaced by the new industries and companies and services that will be coming back to Denver. Is that right, Brian? Am I hearing that correctly? We Well, we're, they, that is where we're seeing the growth. And when we talk with people who are in the commercial real estate business, I am – sort of pleasantly surprised by their comments on uh, office occupancy. It seems to be recovering better than we expected it to a year ago when we were really in the the darkest days of this pandemic. These professional, scientific, and technical jobs that are part of this uh, PBS sector that he he was referring to, 
are, you know, they need a lot of them work in office space. They work in, they need a collaborative or innovative environment. They're doing cloud computing. They're doing software development. They're doing architectural things. Yes, you can do some of it from home. You can work remotely sometimes, but they need that kind of space. And then tying together two of the questions just very briefly that you mentioned, you talked about structural changes and you talked about winners. One thing that you know was occurring before this is the movement to transportation and warehousing, the online uh, business. That sector has gone skyrocketed three years in a row, 20% kind of employment growth annually in that sector. And we're forecasting that kind of an increase in the year ahead. So we're seeing a lot of movement in that direction, and that's becoming a pretty significant contributor to jobs in Colorado. All optimistic, but I have to not to, to be a downer. I've <laughs> got to ask about inflation. We mentioned it earlier on wages. Your report covers the supply chain issue and logistics. Uh, I think I haven't seen a report like that covering that topic as well. And, uh, maybe you did it before and I didn't recognize it, but I thought it was just supremely covered in your report with what's going on internationally, domestically. How, it seems like we have a supply inflation, you know, supply you know, con- is contributing to inflation. Demand is there for goods we don't have. And then we have the issue of labor. We just mentioned that. The salaries are going up. I can't sum that up to not feel uncomfortable or begin to feel uncomfortable, to begin to feel comfortable about inflation. Talk to me about inflation for what you think for next year and ongoing. Do we have a, a new dynamic there? This is always a tricky space to go. You know, we, every time we said I there's going you. to be, <laughs> <laughs> every time we say there's going to be inflation and then, you know, it seems to wane. But uh, from the beginning, when the, honestly, when the Fed was saying this is transitory, it depends on how you define transitory. Uh, we were thinking the end of next year, and uh, we're still in that kind of boat before it starts to slow down by the sort of fourth quarter, still exceeding 2%, but not at the levels it is, it's at right now. A lot of the supply chain bottlenecks should be better by then. So this is we'll, the fourth quarter of next year. Fourth quarter of next year. Got it. Uh, so you're looking at a year, and I think the real question in my mind beyond the sort of just the scare of inflation and we're seeing it in the consumer confidence surveys that are out there, consumers feeling this. We're seeing it even in our Leeds Business uh, Confidence Index that uh, Brian mentioned earlier. So we know that it's causing concerns or worries for the general population, and, and you, we're always worried about confidence levels, both business and consumer confidence levels. But the real concern to me is what does it do to Fed policy? And if Fed policy changes, what does that do to the a trajectory of the economy and the trajectory of the recovery. And I think they're probably going to be forced into, uh, they already have announced some of this, that they're going to be forced into moving faster and probably more significantly than they had planned. I wouldn't have this conversation with somebody without your background, the two of you, but I have heard from some real concern that uh, the Fed's over its head uh, in the issue, that you've got a supply issue, that it's international, and that the demand for goods is such that uh, what they may do in raising interest rates just ca- may cause more of a problem with regards to the economy and not really solve the issue itself because it's out of their hands as with what's happening on the demand side. There's, what, $2.3, $2.4 trillion of excess savings that's been accumulated. 
And so you have a consumer with a lot of money in their pocket, a service industry that's kind of held down because for whatever reason, be it COVID or they can't find people. And so let's go out and buy that that, uh, dishwasher or whatever else that I got to come in from China or I know I'm exaggerating uh, hyperbole, but just to get the point across, is that a real concern on your part, that maybe this is such a new game for the the Fed that maybe they won't be as effective as they have been in the past? So interest rate policies that they're pursuing are effective on demand-side inflation. We're dealing with a situation that is very large supply-side inflation impacts as well. They can't do anything about the supply-side inflation with monetary policy. Um, They're dealing with a situation where we put massive liquidity into the system, not just the Fed. The tax cuts and so on uh, have really put just a tremendous amount of liquidity into the system, into the households, into the savings accounts you were just referring to. And so – they can slow that down a little bit with higher interest rates. They can slow pull back on the demand. But when you have supply-side inflation and you pull back on demand, basically you slow the economy down and you typically look at something called stagflation. That's the stagflation result because uh, you really don't have Fed policy helping the supply chain issues. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate the candor and your response. Uh, let's go back to Colorado for a second. We've had a chance to see housing prices. I mean, if you own a house, that's great. You want to buy one? Not so great. And if I remember correctly, I think we've had like 30% increase here around in Colorado recently. Is it Denver that's had something that's like a 30% increase in housing prices? That's enormous. And yet uh, we had a report out of uh, Common Sense Institute that says that uh, we have to produce, I think, 55,000 uh, 55, housing units, uh, and you all are suggesting that 40-some-thousand is what we're likely to produce in your forecast. That's still a gap between what – assuming that we're reasonably correct of what needs to be done, that's still a gap. How do you see that gap closing, and how do you see the impact, if any, on housing prices here in Colorado? Well, I, I'll answer the first part of that question. I mean <laughs> – we, when when we talk about forty six or forty eight thousand additional units added per year, uh, just note that that's the the most that we've added per year in the last fifteen years. Right, doesn't quite compare to where we were in the late nineteen nineties or two thousand, but it, it's the best in a decade and a half. Which means that we are catching up a little bit. If you take a look at net migration, that means you know more people moving into Colorado than moving out of Colorado. That number has averaged about 35,000 or so for the last four years. Think about that number for a moment. 35,000 more people moving into Colorado. That's not 35,000 households. Those are 35,000 individuals. Is there a spouse there? Are there kids there? So average household size of 2.2 or 2.5, you, you don't need 35,000 more units to fulfill that demand. Got and it. then the other piece of population growth is births minus deaths. So uh, we're, we're a state where we have this positive uh, natural increase, uh, but that rate is slowed too. And, and it's really that, that we have uh, fewer babies being born uh, than we used to as a percent of our population. You know, a- adding 46, 48,000 units a year uh, when we have slower net migration than we've had in a period of time, that, that does afford us an opportunity to, to catch up on our housing supply a little bit. But, uh, you know, that being said, it doesn't solve the house price problem. It's much more complex than that. 
Rich, he is really courageous. He hands you the price issue to handle. Yes. Yeah, uh, he did. He did. So, so let me say two <laughs> things. So I, a topic near and dear to my heart is debt and deficits uh, at the national level. And, and Brian's describing this, and we don't think there will be an annual deficit, but that does not necessarily chew down much of the debt or the, the big gap there is in the supply of housing right now. So we don't disagree uh, at all with your report. We do think that the, we have too few uh, housing units in the state right now, and we do need to sort of close that. Uh, we don't think on an annual basis we're going to get any further behind. We're not going to go okay. any further in debt. Okay. We'll run a surplus perhaps even, but we're still, we still have this accrued debt in, in the housing market. In terms of the price, uh, lots of things factoring into that uh, right now. And, uh, you know, low interest rates, you'd say, well, that, that, that's probably, you know, good news. It makes it more affordable. But frankly, those of us who have homes are capitalizing on that, uh, not the people trying to get into the market for the first time. All of that said, we think housing prices are going to slow next year, but they're still going to be, you know, high single digits, mid to high single digits. We don't think they're going to be double digits again. So we'll see whether or not that it comes to fruition. Well, I listened to all of this. We've got some headwinds, it looks like. But golly, we have some real opportunities, too. It seems there's a transition going on in Colorado. Are we in the forefront of that transition, or or, uh, or am I just trying to make Colorado look more uh, uh, glamorous relative to other states, economically glamorous to other states? So we're we're pretty optimistic about Colorado compared to the rest of the nation. One thing we like to do is benchmark uh, Colorado against ourselves over time. But we also like to benchmark Colorado against the other 49 states. And uh, coming out of the, the Great Recession, 2007 to 2009, Colorado uh, was ahead of, of almost every other state. We ranked fourth in our jobs recovery, and we were in the top 10 for many of our metrics. As we look at uh, where we sit now and where we think we're, we're going to be sitting in 2022, we think that we're still a leading state, just not quite as leading as we were before. So maybe not quite a top 10 state, but we certainly feel that we're going to be a top 20 state or a top 15 state when it comes to this basket of economic metrics that we look at. So to go back to the top 10, to get back up into the top 10, what has to happen in Colorado? So when we're talking about top 10 in general, we're talking about things like GDP, right. personal income, and employment. Right. And, you know, we could have significant increases in, in uh, GDP over time, but some of that, of course, is related to specific industry output, in particular natural resources and mining is a big contributor to that. Uh, but in terms of employment, we're going to need more bodies. And so, you know, we've, um, Brian alluded to earlier, we've ha seen slower growth in terms of net in migration to the state. State demographers forecasting that to pick up in the next two years or so. So that would be part of it. We need more people, more in migrants to, to fill more jobs to get to a you know, higher employment position. Will we see those folks? Um, you know, some of that relates to, honestly, national uh, – international migration to the U.S. That number has slowed dramatically. COVID, some of it policy, but frankly, a lot of it was COVID-related. And you asked a question earlier, uh, you know, do we really have kind of gaps? Uh, we see a lot of hotels, for example, in the high country can't open or can only open part of their facility because they don't have enough staff there. 
And those are jobs that for many years have been filled by international uh, migration on visas. Uh-huh. And those folks are from Eastern Europe and other parts of uh, Europe, actually, some South America, but mostly Europe. So we're just not seeing that uh, flow. And that's part of you know what would cause this. To not sort of take us too far in the weeds, but Brian was describing this before, and I do want to say this, this movement of one million f- uh, fewer people holding dual jobs, it's sort of one of these mysteries of the data, but we count jobs with this data, not you know, incomes. So I think over time, we're going to have to pay a lot more attention to the income number than just the jobs number. Someone holds one job for 40 hours and makes a much higher salary versus two jobs at 15 hours or whatever. Well, they're holding half as many jobs, but they could be making a lot more money with that. I find this fascinating. Brian, please, you want to say something? I I was just going to add one thing to to that is, uh, you know, we, we talked about our fourth highest labor force participation rate in Colorado, and, and this relates to what Rich was just saying. We, uh, we actually have 40,000 more people in our labor force in Colorado than we had right before the pandemic. So from a labor force standpoint, we've recovered. From a job standpoint, we're not quite there yet. We still have this deficit of about 60,000 jobs. And so I, I think, you know, that, that mystery that Rich is, is discussing that's part of that mystery as well. We've got all of these available workers, people who are looking for job opportunities. Why do we have such a jobs gap still? And that's jobs that are to be filled, right? That's not jobs that are open. That that, that just gets us back. Right. So jobs that are open are even greater than that. The conversation actually uh, I I find fascinating to, to see the the disjointed situation is the way I'd refer to it that we have in the labor force at the present time. And uh, I guess uh, a highlight that I would take is that we hope to get this kind of settled out in the next 24 months. Is that fair? Absolutely. Okay. Thank you both for your time. This has been a fascinating discussion. I have to thank you again for your report and all the hard work that you do in putting that together. And the 130 people or firms, you know, whatever that, work with you in doing it. Your report's detailed, and it's obviously you're dedicated to, to helping us in the state. I think I've reflected. I'm eager to, and I think all of our holders are, our, our listeners are, to hear what your research in the future has to say and how we progressed relative to what you're thinking uh, that we might be doing over the next 12 to 24 months. Thanks again. Our pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.